Hello and welcome to our hard news podcast for knowledge at HEC. I'm the school's chief editor, Daniel Brown. Today we talk to... I'm David uh, Zirvelin. I'm an assistant professor at HEC Paris at the Department of Accounting and Management Control. I'm really um, studying explanatory topics, topics where there isn't a lot of data available, emerging topics. One of the projects that we just um, started was on migration and refugee crisis. That's what we are talking about now, I guess. Yes, David Sevelin has indeed been researching successive waves of migration into Europe, the largest such movement of people this continent has known since 1945. But David's soon-to-be-published paper zooms in on 2015. That's when an estimated 10% of German adults volunteered to help the 20,000 people crossing their border every day. Around 900,000 people came to Germany to seek asylum in 2015. While some said Germany could not cope, others argued the new arrivals would boost the country's workforce. Turn now overseas to that growing humanitarian crisis. Hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing brutal violence in the Middle East, rushing across European borders. Germany opening its doors, welcoming nearly 20,000 refugees this weekend alone. And tonight, pressure growing on the United States. ABC's Alex Mark. Working is really good for me. I just want to work, work, work. Business leaders have long been calling for more asylum seekers in the job market. But refugees have a tough time with applications because they almost never have proof of their qualifications. At the time, German citizens quickly stepped in and helped settle the refugees compensating, says David, for the state's inability to handle the situation. David's research in Bavaria revealed that around 300 emergent response groups catered to the needs of what were mainly unaccompanied minors. We discuss this commitment, especially to the educational requirements of the refugees, as well as the need for more research in this field. But first I asked Dr. Tsevelin if there are lessons from 2015 to be learnt to help the 6.6 million Ukrainians resettle after February's invasion by Russia. Well, at the most general level, I would say that there is a tremendous capacity coordinating, organizing capacity in civil society more generally, which is uh, really underestimated and I th also think well under-researched. So in Bavaria, we were so surprised um, how basically or seemingly out of nowhere, private citizens with no background in crisis management were connecting, reaching out to each other and forming a really uh, professional network that played a major role in addressing the crisis at that time. And we are seeing this currently happening again, different parts in Germany, Berlin in the north. And yeah, the general takeaway is really that, I mean, there is a really tremendous thrust in civil society in terms of forming networks and really taking an active role in changing society. And is this specific, do you think, uh, to Bavaria, or we can extrapolate this um, professionalization of voluntary uh, networks uh, to all of Europe in the current situation? Well, when we presented the paper um, at conferences before it was published, um, that was um, that were usual comments that we received. Well, that's very specific to Germany because you have very unique structures, private associations, and um, people to, are in some way already familiar with um, forming those networks. But the more 
work we did on this topic and the more we also studied uh, similar networks outside the territory of Germany, the more I'm convinced that this might be more of a general issue. I mean, to some extent, you could say that the Occupy movement... Occupy Wall Street? Occupy Wall Street, yeah. Um, uh, many uh, scattered uh, uh, climate change um, uh, uh, protests. Um, there is a lot going on. Actually, these private collective action networks, they were already present in the United States in the early 90s as a so-called eco-movement. They were very localized, very contextualized. They didn't spread over the boundaries of a specific city, but it's a phenomenon which is older than one may think, although now in the refugee crisis was they evolved to an extent which perhaps wasn't uh, there in the past, but it is a longer phenomenon, and as I said, I mean, it has been well under-researched, so... Um, Yeah, you began by saying that it's under-researched and underestimated in many ways. How do you explain that? The problem with these networks is that they are really difficult to grasp. They basically emerge out of nothing. Um, just consider the Me Too movement, or all of a sudden it was there, and it was big, and it really had an impact on changing policies. Also climate change, these Friday for Future protests on Scandinavia and Germany, they seem to, um, within one day or another, they are there on the street, and they are really putting pressure on government. So how do you conceptualize it? They, they pop out of nowhere, and then they start to disappear from one day to another, only to be reactivated at different times and spaces. So they are constant shift between latent and active phases. And, you know, I think that our scientific vocabulary for articulating these new forms of organization is not well equipped because many of our models, many of our concepts are still focused on this idea of center periphery so that you have clear-cut organizational centers, you have clear hierarchies, And these control the peripheries. But these networks do not work like that. There is not this one center. There is not a clear-cut hierarchy. There are many centers. They are highly rhizomatic. You can cut these networks at any point, and then the subsections would still survive. So my explanation for that is that current models and current theories are not really well equipped in articulating the complexity of these networks and their fluidity and ambiguity. And you were able to uh, nevertheless uh, do the research, uh, perhaps innovate with new tools, uh, and you focused on accounting in terms of network. Is that perhaps a way in to better understanding the mechanics of these uh, networks? Well, our, our focus on accounting was, I mean, it was more sort of, I think, a consequence of um, these new agendas because accounting in these networks happened, but it was also highly decentralized. And this is not something that we as accountants or managerial accountants are fully familiar with from, from other, other, other sites. But I think the way in which we tackled the topic um, was to really this materiality focus. I mean, the actors were important, the people, their ambition, their desire, their patience to really change something, the thrust Uh, the, the willingness to change something. So the people were important. But I think what we tried to do in explaining the coordination capabilities of this network was really taking a more in-depth look into the materiality of coordination. So the tools that are used. And one thing that is quite popular among collective action more generally is digital media. So if I'm saying that 
there hasn't been any research on these kind of networks. This is also not really true. But research has so far only focused or explained the emergence of these networks by focusing on digital social media, Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook. So without these things, networks would have been unthinkable. But we thought this is not enough. Um, then we also thought, well, there needs to be a common language among those networks that is flowing through digital channels, which we saw in lists more generally, as boring and as mundane they may seem. <laughs> A knowledge at HEC podcast. Jiad Mai from Syria has also just started training as a heating engineer, but he's doing so with a German company rather than the training center. He was studying veterinary science back home before he fled. Now he's struggling with the terminology in this new line of work. Sometimes they ask me for one thing and I get something completely different. It's hard. I didn't do much manual labor in Syria. I was a student and now I'm always working with my hands. Plus, there's the language. What you do have now are mostly people in Berlin who are really, it's not so much the students who were active in Bavaria, but also highly skilled individuals. And I, and I think that it's important. So there has to be a match between the refugees, their needs, desires, and what volunteers are capable to offer. And that is interesting. The structure, the materiality, the list, digital assemblage hasn't changed. But what needed to be changed are the types of volunteers involved. Because with the types of volunteers who were active in 2015, it wouldn't have been possible to address the needs of the Ukraine. Because, I mean, these were highly skilled people. They had money. Most of them, they were coming with their funding, so it wasn't... They really needed to talk to people who they felt, the Ukraine refugees, they are at the same level. <laughs> so, you know, but, but that is just an example how the structure could just be adjusted from one day to another. So, to put it brutal, in a brutal way, the younger inexperienced volunteers were kicked out of the lists and the other ones were just plugged into this architecture so um, mm. to re-establish the match. David Osferlin, we're talking about 10% of German citizens that were involved in what you could say non-routine resources and, and fields outside of policing, for example, or firemen and so on. What kind of resources were they offering and are they continuing to offer nowadays? So at that time, they were informed quite a couple of days before the refugees arrived. And what they did was to just use the list to collect each and every expertise that one person could bring into the network. So some were teachers. They offered to take some language courses. Some were counselees or had some knowledge in psychology and uh, students of psychology. They said, okay, we can do some counseling, handcrafted activities. So everyone brought something into the list. And then they made clusters. So they looked, okay, what are similar activities? Um, how can we combine it? And they came up with such artistic workshop where they had poems or bicycle workshop, language courses, of course, counseling. So we have a list of almost 200 activities that were offered um, across the entire network for refugees. But of course, then it turned out the refugees then said, okay, we, perhaps we don't need that one. We need other things. And they adjusted. But at that time, it were really basic 
2015, activities covering basic needs, food, clothes, donation, job. But now with Ukraine, it's different. It's more that they have university or high education, so they need different types of assistance. Uh, in Berlin, it's interesting that they started up building a network almost exactly as a copy of Bavaria. They use digital media, they, they develop the offerings from what they expected would happen based upon the experience in Bavaria. But the interesting thing was that they then discovered, no, we need to change again. But it was also possible. And I think with this fluid structure of the network, the materiality that they used, they were able to adjust accordingly. David Tevelin, assistant professor in HEC's Department of Accounting and Management Control. David's work on collective responses to forced migration continues to be highly topical as the world sees refugee crises swell with conflicts not only in Europe, but Africa, the Middle East, the Americas and Asia. The paper he co-authors with Lucas Lolin is called Commensuration by Form, List and Accounting in Collective Action Networks. It's coming out in the July edition of the review Accounting, Organizations and Society. Well, that's it for this podcast edition of Knowledge at HEC. If you have any comments or questions, please address them to brownd at hec.fr. Until next time, goodbye. (laughs) 